we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to flip to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll begin continuing from that passage Linda just read as well. But as we are starting today, it, uh, it, it made me think, and I think I said 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're in chapter 12, excuse me. It's one of those moments where you go, what just happened? Right? Like, because Nathan's not the pull the band-aid off really slowly as it pulls each hair on your arm, right? Nathan just walks in, grabs hold of it, and rips it off. You are the man. I've had some of those jarring moments, and you, you've had them in your life. Maybe that time an employer walked in and said, you no longer have a job. Or, or maybe that, that time that your child comes home and just shares news that breaks your heart and just blows your mind. Or, or maybe you've just experienced that season just in life, right? There's moments in sports where like, wait, did that just happen? Or, or the greatest one I think of is that morning at about 9 a.m., when I was sitting in eighth grade, when somebody comes to the classroom we were in and said, a plane just flew into buildings in New York, right? We, we have those moments where what just happened? Personally, my greatest what just happened moment probably came, um, I think it was Cooper's first full day of being born. They had rolled him into our room and we had been prepared to change diapers, right? Like, well, we knew what to do. I had younger sisters. I had changed diapers before. I had worked in churches. I had changed diapers. And then this kid is laying there. He needs a diaper change. And I start to go change his diaper, but he is so fragile and tiny. And he doesn't just lay still like he should. I, the dummy didn't move in the practice event. Right? That little doll was really simple. My sisters, when they were one or two years old, it was easy to change them at that point. They knew what to expect, but this was his fourth ever diaper experience, and so he's moving everywhere. And I remember the pediatrician on call walks in. He says, scoot over. Let me show you how to do this. And in that moment, I'm going, what did we just sign up for? I can't even do what I thought I could do, much less the other parts. And so it's one of those moments of what just happened, and those moments change our lives. Their signature monumental moments and what just happened to let me catch you up is last week we studied David and Bathsheba. It's a real fun sermon to preach. Go back and listen to it in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and we looked at David's choosing to, uh, he sees a woman who is married. He decides to call her to his courts. He sleeps with her and then when he learns that she is pregnant, he then conceives an idea to kill her husband. And honestly, chapter 11 leaves with David thinking he's covered it all up. It's worked out. And in chapter 12, we see that David is still living, he is still breathing, he is still reigning as king over Israel. He's gotten away with it for all intents and purposes until Nathan walks in. And don't diminish what Nathan does when he walks in. He is walking in to call the king an adulterer and a murderer. This is a death sentence in a lot of ways for David, I mean for Nathan. You don't walk into the king. Ask John the Baptist how that worked out. He lost his head for it. Nathan walks in with faith, trusting his God, and he goes and he does what is really challenging to do, and he says to the king, you 
He tells him a story, right? Of a rich man with everything, with herds and flocks and all of this, and who has a traveler come to his home, and he wants to show this hospitality that was common in that day. But instead of taking from his herd and his flock, he goes and he takes from a poor man, a man that has just one lamb, a lamb that he loves dearly. He loves like its own daughter. He eats at the table with that lamb. He lays at night with that lamb in his arms. And you know Nathan's not talking about a lamb here. He quickly is showing David through this poignant story, you are the rich man that has everything. Wives, concubines, you can have whatever you want, and yet you went to Uriah and you took what he loved dearly, the one that he held in his arm every night, the one that he loved and treated as a daughter, as a family member, you took that one. You who has much took from the one who has little. And did you notice David's outrage in verse 5, right? This man should die. He assumes that Nathan is telling him about what has happened in the kingdom, and he is so distraught by it. He says that that man must be put to death because of his sin, because of his greed, because of his terrible choices. Isn't it those who are guilty that spew the venom first? That grab the stone and say, guys, we need to kill him. Look at what he's done. What a terrible person he is. And yet, then Nathan turns the table on him. And he looks at him in the eye and says, you are the man. This is what you've done, David. This is your story, David, except it wasn't his lamb, it was his wife. And you didn't just take his lamb and be okay with that. You took his life and his wife. David, you are the man. You're the one that has it all and stole from the one who has little. You are the man. And we're going to study the rest of this passage, starting in verse 7 again here in just a moment. But before we get there, I want you to think about those months that preceded the moment. David has killed Uriah. He, he has married Bathsheba. And most likely this story or this encounter with Nathan happens right around the birth of their son. What did those moments, or what were those months like before that moment with Nathan? What, what was David thinking was he deteriorating as a husband and as a father and as a leader and as a king because this guilt weighed on him so much? What was he, is this living a lie just wearing him down, so worried he's going to be exposed? What was his spiritual life like? I mean, because David is the great worshiper, the, the great psalm writer, the great warrior, the great poet. David ha has been living this life so in tune with God, but but what was it like? Was David still worshiping? Was David still praying in those months before the moment? Was he still writing psalms? Or was he still uh, worshiping God and dancing in the streets, so excited, unashamed of what he was doing because he was so overflowing with worship? Well, was he still experiencing blessing and favor from God during that season? Was he still praying daily? Or did he hate when services and festivals rolled around? Because he knew that he was such a phony and a fake, or he felt that he was a phony or a fake. 
Did, did he dread when he was called upon to pray in public because he knows he wasn't praying in private anymore because the weight of his sin was so heavy on him? What were those months like before the moments when he gets exposed? Psalm 32, I think, gives us insight. It says this in verse 3, For when I kept silence, your, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. The Living Bible translates verse 3 this way. You can throw it back on verse 3 on the screen. This is how it translates it, paraphrasing. There was a time when I wouldn't admit what a sinner I was, but my dishonesty made me miserable and filled my day with frustration. This is David's experience. He was struggling, and now his secret is out. It's exposed. I wonder... If David was relieved, I wonder if he was ashamed. I wonder if he started trying again to cover it up. We'll, we'll get the answer to that so we don't have to wonder, but think about it. In that moment, was he relieved? Was he embarrassed? Was, was he overwhelmed? There was a pastor Carlin was telling me about in Alabama. There was a pastor this week pastoring a church. I think he was the mayor of the city. And then his private life, with a lot of scandalous sexual sins, was exposed online. When that man's sin was exposed, he took his life this week. When sin gets exposed, how do we respond? David is sitting in the court of the king when he is just told, you are the man. What else does Nathan say? It says this in verse 7. He says, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Why, David? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall not depart from your house because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives from before your eyes and I will give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. What is David feeling like in this moment? His sin is now exposed. Let's break down what happens in 7 through 12 real fast. The first thing that we see is the goodness of God in verses 7 and 8. God starts off showing his goodness to David. He says, I anointed you, I delivered you, I kept you safe, I brought you into this home, I gave you these wives, I made you the king, and I've given you this kingdom. One writer puts it all in P's that makes it really easy. I've given you position, I've given you protection, I've given you privilege, I've given you possessions, and I've given you power. And then in verse 8, that God of more shows back up. We talked about it two weeks ago in the covenant to David. 
And if you would have wanted more, David, I would have given it to you. All you had to do was ask. The goodness of God is on display because our God is good. And even in this rebuke of David, the goodness of who God is is clearly displayed. The next thing we see in verse 9 is the offensiveness of David. But you, David, you chose adultery and murder when I chose to anoint you and to protect you and to provide for you. You chose what was not yours. You chose what was evil in my sight. You slept with Bathsheba. You killed her husband and you covered it all up. You have broken two commandments and many more. You deserve to die, David. Verses 10 through 12, we see the consequences that come to David. God shares with him the consequences. Because of your actions, because of your choices, because of your sin, because of your selfishness, you will now experience violence. The sword will not depart from your house, from your family. Your wives will be taken. You are going to get back what you did. And you did it in private, and I'm going to do it in public. David will see four of his sons die prematurely before he dies. David's wives and concubines will be sexually abused and raped on display for all to see on the balcony of the palace. David will know that this child, at the, verse 14, we won't read it today, but verse 14 will tell us that the son that Bathsheba will have will die. Sin is not a victimless crime. Sin has consequences. And your sin has consequences too that go beyond just you. Your greed overlooks the needs of others. Your desire for pleasure comes at the abuse of others. Your selfishness causes others difficulty. Sin is not without consequence. There is no victimless Sin. There's always consequences, and God has laid out to David the consequences he will experience. The sword will not depart. His wives will be taken and on public display, abused in front of all of Israel. And he says, in the, under the sun or before the sun, that doesn't mean like before dawn. No, no, no. That means like in the light of day, everything's going to be seen. So how does David respond? This is the real key of today's passage. Verse 13, we're going to just read the first half of it. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, this is the response of David part right here. And honestly, David the king could have had Nathan killed immediately. He could have said, I'm sure there was somebody in the palace right now as he points at him and says, you are the man, and starts detailing the sinfulness. I'm sure there is somebody unsheathing their sword just waiting for the command of the king to get rid of that blasphemer. Not our David. David could have argued with him. David could have said, no, you're, you're just promoting a rumor. You have no basis. David could have said, well, let's go to Mari or Jerry Springer and let's just do a DNA test, Right? I'm not the father. You can't prove it, right? There, there's no technology that can prove this. No. David could have disputed it 
He could have denied it. He could have lied about it. He could have had him killed. He could have shut the rumor down and said, hey, if you want to talk against the king, that's going to happen to you. David looks like the hero of the story, right? I married this widow who lost her husband. I love how he doesn't just say, because David could have said, well, I didn't kill Uriah. Uriah died in battle. He says, you killed him by the hand of the Ammonites. We know what you did, David. And David knows what he did. And David doesn't lie about what he did. He confesses. I have sinned against the Lord. David's confession is direct. It is immediate. And he, he doesn't blame anyone. He doesn't blame anything else for his choices. He doesn't go, well, that pretty woman shouldn't have been naked on her balcony where I could see her. No. He doesn't say it's Bathsheba's fault. It's my fault. I'm the one that did it. I'm the one that chose it. I'm the one that abused my power and abused this woman. I am the one who did this. I have sinned against the Lord. There's no more covering it up, no more hiding, no more concealing. See, in 2 Samuel 12, we have a short confession. In Psalm chapter 51, we have a fuller confession of David. That psalm starts off this way. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is that interaction, and David writes a worship song to it. What does it say? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Jump down to verse 10. It says this, create in me, O God, a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. David confesses his sin clearly. And I think he repents of it as well. This week I was reading a book by Charles Swindoll on this passage and he brought up four key elements to true repentance. And I want to share those with you because they're better than I can come up with by far. So we're just going to let him do the heavy lifting on this. The first, true repentance is open admission. I did it. It was me. It's not my mental illness or my depression which those things are real, but I made the choice still. It is not my family of origin brought this to me or upon me. No, I have sinned against the Lord. Open admission matters. The second thing he says is this. There's a desire to break from sin. Repentance literally means to turn around, to turn away, to not continue in that way. Oftentimes we confess, we'll talk more about this in just a moment, but we don't want to change what we're doing. We don't want to turn from what we're doing. We enjoy the sin, and so we just want to admit, God, uh, we messed up, and we're probably going to do it again. Last week I said the only way to fight sexual sin is to flee. You either flee or you fail. 
If you leave temptation around you and sexual sin, you will fail. The only option is to flee. It's biblical, Old Testament, New Testament. Third thing is you must have a broken and humble attitude. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room for pride. There's no room for justification. There's no room for blaming of others when we are truly repenting. I messed it up. It's on me. I am not going to arrogantly come and say, well, I'm usually pretty good, God. No, this is, I failed. Finally, we trust in the forgiveness of God. This is huge. True repentance understands true grace. Some of us do the first three, but we don't really understand four. But David leans into that, doesn't he? Creating me a clean heart, oh God. But then he, you know, he says, uh, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I know my sins are ever before me, but you can cleanse me from my sin. David doesn't sugarcoat his sin. He acknowledges it clearly and he repents of it. The final thing we're going to look at is God's response. 13b shows us God's response. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan says back to him through, David, through God, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Two things are huge coming from uh, God there. First is forgiveness. Your sin has been put away. The forgiveness David was leaning into and believing could happen, he gets clearly. He receives it honestly. Your sins have been put away. My question to you is, do you believe in that type of forgiveness? Because you know all the vile, terrible, awful disgusting, detestable, outright just embarrassing things that you have done in thought and word and deed, you know just how gross your sin is. But do you believe that there is forgiveness for it, for all that you have done? Do you believe that he can fully wipe it away? Some of us may go, well, why, God, would you cleanse, or why would you put away his sin? David's done nothing to deserve that. He didn't make a single sacrifice. He hasn't, he hasn't done anything in worship. How do you know he's going to change? A few chapters earlier, we saw he was just building up his, his supply of concubines and wives. And of course, he then goes and finds Bathsheba. He has an insatiable desire that he cannot quench, and I don't think he wants to quench it, God. Why would you forgive him? Why would you put away his sins? Because he doesn't seem to be changing. You're just going to trust him? You're just going to let him say, I'm sorry, and it's over? He's not very trustworthy. He's been lying this whole time. God says, I have taken away your sin. Final word, final answer, it has happened. Do you believe that for yourself? The second thing he says is you shall not die. Again, he should have died. The penalty of adultery, death. The penalty of murder, death. David did both. I can get to see, maybe you get where you can get, um, get away with one, but not both. Come on. Even David himself in verse 5 said that the rich man should die. And all he did was still a lamb, not a life and a wife. David should have died. 
One commentator, he asked the question. He said, well, why did God let him live? I loved his response. He said, there can only be one answer. Because God is compassionate and gracious. It's Exodus 34, 7. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It goes on to say in some other verses, maintaining love to the thousands, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. The only reason that David is alive is because this is who God is. Carlin, go ahead and just throw that on the screen some more for us. Because God is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He is he's abounding in steadfast love from generation to generation. Only because that is who our God is, is David still breathing in that moment. Why did David not die? Because God is love, and in that moment, he chose to show that part. He's also just, and he's also judge. Here's why this is just outstanding news for us. is because you and I deserve to die. Very clearly, you and I deserve to die. You may go, well, 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 I haven't committed adultery. You've done plenty wrong. Why don't we come and sit down and expose all of your sins and see if you still want to tell me you don't deserve to die? Because you and I have ruined your, our relationships with our Heavenly Father, just like Adam and Eve. We have chosen to be our own God, and we have said, I don't need you, God. I don't want you, God. I don't really care about you, God, by our actions, by our thoughts, and by our deeds. David deserved to die, but he didn't die. We all deserve punishment. We all could be convicted. We have all ruined our relationship. We all deserve death. Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. But yet, Exodus 34, 6, and 7 still exist. We have a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love from generation to generation, who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Guys, this is who our God is, and it is quite amazing. Because, friends, you're the man. You're the sinner. And what are the wages of sin? Death. What do you make by sinning? Right? The wages of a, a job is usually money, hopefully, and maybe stock benefits and health insurance. Those are nice, too. What's the wage of sin? What do you get for sinning? Death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life. Friends, you and I are the man... And yet we have been given a gift of grace. Salvation is the gift of God for those who do not deserve his love and mercy, and yet he freely bestows it upon us. You are the man. You are the sinner. You are the one that takes with a lot from those that have little. The question today is not, are you a sinner? That's pretty clear. I've known you long enough to know the answer to that. The question today is, will you confess and repent? What are you going to do with your sin? See, we talk in churches all the time about confession and repentance, but I think most of us just want our conscience appeased and we want our consequences minimized. We want our consciences appeased and our consequences minimized. We just want to be able to move on and not have to think about what we've done. We talk a lot about confession and repentance, but we often stop short. We go halfway. We do a little and hope it's enough. We don't really want to expose all of our sin, so we, we expose just some of it. We sugarcoat our sin. Here's the best way I can explain that. Say you're supposed to have somebody at your house at 7.05, I mean at 7 o'clock, 
at 7.05, you don't know where they are. You're getting a little frustrated. You're an on-time person. You're actually an early person. To be on time is to be late, if you're like me. And so you're there at 7 o'clock, and then you're giving them some grace. At 7.05, you got to give them a call. Hey, where are you? You give them a call, and they answer, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. And you say, well, how far away are you? And they look down at their GPS, and it says 19 minutes. <laughs> what do they tell you? I'm 10 minutes away. I'll be there really soon, right? The person's going to realize they called you at 7.05 and you didn't arrive till 7.24, that you weren't there at 7.15. But we sugarcoat to make it go down a little bit easier, don't we? Maybe you've done that before? I don't know. I've got a friend in this room that does that to me all the time right there. We try to make it lighter. We try to make it not sound as bad. We try to pad the stats, cue the data. God, I'm sorry I did something bad instead of, God, I just am bad. God, I'm sorry I wasn't as kind as I should be. No, you were a jerk. God, God, I'm sorry I haven't prayed today. You haven't prayed in 10 days. Why are you so consumed about today? Well, we try to sugarcoat our sin to God when he knows everything that we have done. I love this definition of confession. It's realizing and admitting what God already knows. You're not surprising the omniscient God with your sin list. Just confess it. Sugarcoating our sin is the stupidest thing a Christian could do. And honestly, sugarcoating our sin means we don't understand our Savior. Do not be so arrogant to think that you can out the blood of Jesus. Do not think that for the first time in 2,000 years, you've come up with a list of sins that Jesus can't cover, that you've bested the cross. You haven't. When he says all your sins, he says all of them. He knows what you have done, where you have been, what you have thought. When we sugarcoat our sin, we're missing our Savior. Just be honest. I cheated. I, I was defrauding. I, I lied. I didn't care. I didn't desire this. Just be honest. The other way we stop short, we either sugarcoat our sin or we confess, but we don't repent. You admit what you've done, but you have no desire to change. You just want the guilt washed away. Christians, friends, we must learn to confess and repent. 1 John 8 and 9 say this, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Quit lying about how little your sin is. Verse 9, though, says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confess what God already knows, guys. Admit what he knows and repent of it. I'm going to end with this. Last week, we started off with what defines a man as we were looking at the story of David and Bathsheba. We looked at Barry Bonds and Pete Rose, and are they defined by being a great hitter and home run hitter, or are they defined by cheating and steroids and gambling? What, what's the choice? We looked at David. Is he defined by being the king? Is he defined by defeating the giant? Is he defined by the psalms that he has written in worship? Is he defined by this evening with Bathsheba and the scheme to kill Uriah? What defines David? 
and I was wrestling, and I didn't really give you an answer last week. I just kind of said, I don't know. What do you want to define him as? I think this week I found what defines David. I think Psalm 51 defines David. Because he's all of those things. But it's not David's success that defines him, nor his sin. It's David's attitude towards God that defines him as a man after God's own heart. And so when he sees his sin, when his sin is exposed, what does he say? God, cleanse me. Against you and you only have I sinned. Create in me a clean heart, O God. I need my transgressions blotted out. This is what defines David. In Psalm 51, we see a king who is humble enough to realize that God is the true king. In Psalm 51, we see a worshiper who is honest enough to say he's not worthy to write worship songs. In Psalm 51, we see a sinner who is also repentant of his sin. In Psalm 51, we see someone who freely admits his sin and freely understands and clings to grace. In Psalm 51, we see a man who trusts God and has faith in his word. It's not his victories, it's not his defeats, it's not his successes, it's not his sins. It is his attitude to believing God that defines David. David is defined by how he worships in spite of his brokenness. And David gives us an eyes of how we should respond to God. I'll end with this phrase. David, in today's passage and study, David's sin was exposed and so was his faith. Whether you want it to or not, your sin's going to be exposed, guys. If you get married, your sin's really exposed. If you have kids, your sin and selfishness is really exposed. If you work in a place, your sin is exposed. If you're a neighbor to somebody, your sin is exposed. If you have a mother or father, your sin is exposed. But what about your faith? David's sin was exposed. You're the man. I have sinned against the Lord. Is your faith also exposed just as your sin is? I sure hope so. I sure hope that you're not trusting in what you can do and what you have done, but you're trusting solely in the work of Jesus Christ who says, I will forgive you of all your sins.